Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church at Grove Farm. Glad you're here. Hey, a, a quick announcement. As you may have heard, there's, a, uh, there's uh, this thing called an election going on. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you're aware of it. Uh, and it's not just national. It's, it's local and state as well. And, you know, Pennsylvania is called a commonwealth. Did you know that? The commonwealth of Pennsylvania, one of four. And commonwealth, the root of that means uh, sharing the common good. And one of the ways that we do that uh, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, yes, but also citizens of this place that we call home, Earth, Pennsylvania, is, uh, is to vote and to exercise our right to vote and to support the common good of our local community, our state, and, of course, our nation. So it's a big election. I want to encourage you to, uh, to vote. Ignore the polls. Ignore the pundits. And just do your duty because it's the right thing to do. If you would like a brochure on some of the issues that are really important for this year's election, you can find those out in the foyer. Well, we're going to look today in our last, uh, our last sermon in this series on anatomy of the soul. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that the Psalms were an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And today we're getting right down into the very heart of things. And I think we should begin with prayer. So will you pray with me? Father, I'm so grateful for the restoration of my soul that you have given me. And many of my friends here also long for that, Lord. That sense of your pardoning grace, your cleansing power, your restoration. Lord, will you, will you give that to us today, Father? By sending the Holy Spirit upon your word in such a way that, that we can understand it, we can receive it and believe it, bank on it, and be changed. God's people said, Amen. Peter, not his real name, was headed home. He had lost his marriage. He had walked away from it. He was a pastor of a, of a large church he had gone to a great seminary, one of the best in the country, was well-trained. His dad was a pastor. He was the son of a pastor. Every Monday, he and his dad would sit down and go over his Sunday sermons. And his dad would mentor him into the things of God and reflect back to him how he could improve in his preaching and his understanding of God's Word. He grew a healthy church, and it was welcoming to people who were outside the faith and who were working their way, so to speak, back home. And uh, Peter decided one day uh, to go on Facebook, and he discovered an old friend of his. happened to be his old high school girlfriend. And he began a conversation. And the conversation led to an illicit affair, and the illicit affair overwhelmed him with such guilt that Peter walked away from an incredible wife and uh, three or four kids, two of whom were in a a Christian college that if I mentioned you would know the name. And he just walked away from it all. He walked away from a, a large and thriving church, the largest in the county. Walked away from a healthy marriage, a devoted wife who loved him. Walked away from adoring children. And, uh, and just say goodbye to it all. 
and chased after this woman. He was divorced. Well, one day I'm, I'm preaching on this psalm. And after the service, the guys came up to me afterwards and said, did you know that Peter was in the service today? In the mercy of God, this, this man's life trajectory just intersected that particular day in a sermon series that we had planned out weeks and weeks in advance. And in walks, in walks this guy, whammo, into Psalm 51 as he was making his way back home in repentance. You know, the Christian life really is ongoing repentance. There are no sinners emeritus. This is not something that we, we get and then we graduate from. It's, it's an onward call always to walk by the Spirit in friendship and in fellowship with Jesus. And so Psalm 51 reaches out to us this morning to remind us of a really profound truth. And here it is. Our holy God cares enough to confront us because He's a God of mercy. He will confront us to bring us care and to bring us comfort. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's, a, that's grace, and that's not often seen as grace. I think we like to think of grace as something that just allows us to be pardoned and forgiven so we can live our lives the way we want to live them. But no, real grace, true grace, biblical grace is the grace that cares enough to confront us in order then to bring us comfort. Now, this psalm can be broken down into three chunks. Here's the first. Grace for change is rooted in God's character, which is mercy. Grace for change in your life and in my life is rooted in God's mercy. Secondly, grace for change restores the soul. And third, grace for change reaches out through us to refresh and restore others with the same kind of comfort and the same kind of grace that we've received. Psalm 51, an amazing psalm. It begins with mercy, a a plea for mercy. Grace for change is rooted in that mercy. Change begins with with recognizing that we really need mercy. David says, "I, I, I need your mercy, God. Please have mercy on me, O God, according to your character, according to your steadfast love, your loyal, your lavish Love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David is calling out to God to act according to his character, his unfailing love, and his great compassion. Now, you know the story. David was a king, and and in the springtime, when kings would ride out to do war, David's armies went out, and David was kicking back at home. And one day, we don't know whether this was David's habit or not, but David went up onto the rooftop of his home. And he was looking out over the city. And the Bible says that he saw a woman and that she was beautiful. She was bathing. And lust was incited in his heart, and he was checking her out from his high perch. And he sent his servants out to her and and had her come to be with him. And he, he laid with her. He abused his power. He abused his strength. He abused his good looks. David was a good-looking guy. And he seduced her, and, and he laid with her. 
Well, the result, of course, was she got pregnant. And Bathsheba was her name, and and David didn't know what to do, so what he does is he begins to to set in motion a cover-up of all cover-ups. And he invites her husband, who was faithfully out executing on David's command, the war that they were engaged in, back from the front. He brings them in, he feeds them, and he says, go down and sleep with your wife. Spend the night with her. Clean your feet, as the Bible says, and go in and lay with her. Well, Uriah felt bad that he was removed from the field and his buddies, his comrades in arms, were still fighting. So instead of going and being with his wife, he lays down with his servants outside David's door. And he sleeps there all night. When David discovers that in the morning, he's really freaking out now because his cover-up isn't working. He implores Uriah to stay, to not go back to the front quite yet. He throws him a big party that night, and he conspires to get him drunk. The Bible says that that's exactly what happens, and, and Uriah is in his cups. He's had a little too much wine. And David is certain that this time he'll toddle off down the hill and lay with his wife. But he doesn't do it. Again, Uriah, who has metal on the inside, there's some character in this man, and he he stays, and uh, he again sleeps with the servants outside King David's door. David takes the cover-up another step, another level, and he writes a letter. He puts a seal on it so that it cannot be broken and opened, and he gives it. He gives it to Uriah. And inside that letter is Uriah's death sentence. Uriah takes his own death sentence and gives it to the general, Joab, and and Joab reads the letter, and Joab executes the command of the king, which was put Uriah in the heat of the battle, put him right up there at the tip, the point of the spear, and when the battle has reached its fury, back up and let Uriah be killed. Joab does it. And Uriah is killed. David then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And the child is born and is sick. And David calls out to God for seven days. He fasts. He calls out to God. And and the baby is, is not well. David breaks his fast and goes on with life. Until one day, until one day, he gets confronted. Because again, God cares enough to confront us when we sin, and God sends a man, Nathan, the prophet of God. He'd revealed his sin to Nathan, and he busts him. He tells him a story, a tale of a, of a poor shepherd whose only sheep had been stolen by this evil, wealthy herd owner next door. And David makes a judicial pronouncement. He's really bugged by this story. He's looking for justice, and so he says he's going to bring the law down on this guy for doing this to this, this poor man, his one ewe lamb that was stolen by the rich guy. And then David is busted completely before God, as Nathan says, you are that man. You are that man. Our repentance is only possible are turning away from sin and the kinds of things that grip us and hold us and keep us from walking with Him is only possible because God is merciful enough 
and kind enough to confront us in the midst of our sins and our weaknesses. David invokes not only the name of God, but his character. God's character is described to Moses in Exodus 34. This is sort of the essence of God's holy love. The Lord had passed before Moses and proclaimed to Moses the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. David taps into that very nature, that very heart of God, and pleads to God based on God's character. This is not a moment when he is making a demand. He's not a proud king here. This is a a petition of a lowly, humble creature who has been busted and knows that he needs God's pardon and forgiveness. He reminds God and he reminds himself of the overflowing abundance of God's mercy for sinners. And he makes his humble request for forgiveness based upon who God is. Now change happens in the human heart with a longing to be clean, with a sense of awareness going on inside the human soul that there's something off. David proclaims in in verse 2, wash me. This is his prayer. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Scrub away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. Soak out my sins in your holy laundry. Get those stains out, O God. Verse 2 is a statement of our need for that, for that cleansing, which ultimately can only come through the blood of Christ. Now, David recognizes this need to be cleaned up, and so he actually invites God to go in there and clean him up. Now, if there was ever a time in the history of the church for that internal cleansing to be needed, that that time is now. I've seen the statistics from the Pew uh, Foundation that have just come out showing a steady decline in faith among people uh, under the age of 40. They don't make this connection, but surely there's a, there's a connection here between the decline of faith of those under 40 and the tsunami of pornography that has just swept over the church. Surely there's a connection there. And the reality is, is that we live in a time, we live in an age where everything is pornified, everything is sexualized. And... and Every commercial, every football game, every place you go, you can't even go to a high school football game without some element of sexuality being injected into the whole environment. And that's the culture that we live in nowadays. And boys and men are awash in it. If there was ever a time uh, for a need for cleansing on the inside, that time is now, that, that washing thoroughly from our iniquity. David goes on, he cops to this, need for cleansing. In verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I can't get away from it. David sees his sin. The consequences of that sin are a constant reminder to him. When he goes to bed at night, it's whispering in his ear. When he gets up in the middle of the night, it's right there before his face. It's like weighing upon him. It's crushing his bones. It's there for him when he wakes up in the morning. As he's having his breakfast, there it is. And he's plagued with guilt. He's carrying it around with him. But when he's confronted 
out of God's mercy and compassion, that, that confrontation brings a result. And David responds very quickly, and God then brings great comfort to him. Listen, a key to real spiritual growth. If you want to grow in Christ, listen up. A key to spiritual growth is a growing willingness to quickly admit it when you're wrong, to just cop to it, to stop the cover-up and admit to it. And David agrees with God's opinion. He didn't stubbornly persist with the cover-up. He didn't activate his inner lawyer and begin arguing with God. No, he gave up. And God was quick to forgive. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. There's the gospel. The Lord has taken away your sin and placed it on another who has passed the test that you failed. David continues in his prayer, realizing the reality that ultimately his sin was against God himself. In verse 4, he says, Against you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David has sinned against Uriah. David has sinned against Joab, making him a partner in murder. David has sinned against Bathsheba. David has sinned against Bathsheba's child. David has sinned against his nation. But ultimately, most importantly, David has sinned against his God. Where does that come from? Why do we have this innate rebellion to ruin our lives, this innate tendency to just walk away from God, disregard all of his guidelines for our lives, and just walk away from him and walk right into the noose as as my friend down the road, that pastor Peter down the road, who just made an utter and complete shipwreck of his faith. Why does that happen? David explains in verse 5. He perceives a deep reality that he's always had this tendency within him. The sin is crouching on your door. Nobody escapes it. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, sinfulness marks everyone from birth. Theologians call this original sin. We come out with this tendency, this this rebellion, this heart that is inclined to run away from God and, and try to live life our own way. This inner propensity to sin is the root of all the sinful actions that follow after it. It's as though we have a moral virus inside. There's only one antidote, and it's the blood of Christ. And without the blood of Christ, there is no pardon, and there is no victory. So that we can perceive this reality that God is teaching us, He wants us to have truth in our inner being from the inside out. David goes on to say in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Wisdom must invade our innermost being. It's got to get down into our guts and, and shape our mind and shape our hearts. This is the antidote. This is how God changes us. He changes us through implanting within us His Word. You've come this morning to have God's Word stirred up within you, implanted in you afresh, and brought to life within you. The old Puritans called that illumination. 
as the Holy Spirit causes the Word of God to come alive inside you, the result is change from the inside out. Those inward parts delighting in truth, being taught wisdom in the secret heart. Grace for change is rooted in mercy and reality, and grace restores the soul. Look at verse 7 with me. God cleanses and mends the soul. We don't self-mend. We don't self-medicate the soul. We have to go to the great physician. God cleanses and mends the soul. Purge me with hyssop, David says, and I shall be clean. Now, hyssop is a plant. It's kind of a long, kind of funky plant. It's got short little leaves on it. And they would, you know, dip it in, in holy water and sprinkle it on people and on sacred things. And it was meant to be symbolic of a cleansing, but that cleansing was always on the outside, and David is wanting that kind of cleansing on the inside, and he can say, wash me, Lord, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And he goes on and develops this cleansing theme through verse 7, this ritual cleansing on the outside. But more than a bath, A ritualistic bath, more than an emotional catharsis, as helpful as those can be sometimes, David asks for a spiritual cleansing. The hyssop, of course, points to Christ. Because ultimately, the cleansing that we need, which is foreshadowed here in this psalm, comes through receiving, by faith, the sacrifice made for us through the blood of Christ, being sprinkled by His cleansing blood. That's how we receive our pardon. And we are changed from the inside out. True restoration requires cleansing. And and verse 8 anticipates the ultimate fulfillment, that great joy of knowing that you've been cleansed. Do you know today? Do you know that you know that you know, deep down in your heart, that, that you have been forgiven of your sin? Or is the stain and shame of it still hanging on you. You can be free from that. Restorative cleansing and joy comes only through the blood of Christ. In verse 9, David acknowledges that, that God must choose to look past our sin. He doesn't deny the sin's existence, but he looks past our sin in order to restore our soul. And that's how grace comes to us. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. David uses then several Hebrew words. He he grapples with his sin. He's struggling to describe the very nature of his sin, and and so he calls it transgression. Transgression is an act of rebellion. If you're a hunter and you see a sign that says, this property is private, it's posted, no hunting, and you cross over that line, you've committed a transgression. That's an analogy for what sin is if you're hunting on somebody's posted property. David says iniquity. Iniquity is a a crooked or perverse act, an intentional twisting of legal or moral intent. And of course, sin. The Hebrew word here, sin, means missing the mark, like like a a marksman who's who's shooting that, that bow and arrow but misses the mark entirely. He prays for God to hide his face from his sin, from his transgression, and to blot out the stain of his iniquity. God continues to renew us through this process. 
He renews our spirits and, and He desires us to be restored to joy. But first we have to have a new heart. David says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You have no idea how many times I've prayed that prayer before I, before I preach, reminding me of my need to rely 110%, not on my righteousness, but on His and His alone. And then the very center of David's prayer is seen in verse 12. Look very carefully at verse 12. For you poets, this, this psalm is a chiasm. That means it, it's structured in a funny way, and, the, and the, the point of the poem is in the middle. Verse 12. This is the peak. This is the point. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When God creates a clean heart in the middle of our chaos, in the middle of our turbulent lives, He can create a clean heart. Just as God created the world by the power of His Word, He, he spoke and things came into existence by His spoken Word, He can declare you pardoned and create in you a clean heart. He can do it. I've seen it done over and over and over. God's cleansing presence brings joy. It it renews our strength. It sustains us in our obedience. It causes us to want to turn back to God and to follow in His ways. By God's mercy, we're restored in a right relationship with Him as we turn from our sin. And then we can know again that joy of God's salvation, that purpose that He has for us. Now, there's a purpose to experiencing this joy. David joins the joy he anticipates with a request for a willing spirit that he might become useful to the Lord. So God gives us grace for change, which is rooted in His mercy. God gives us grace to restore the soul. And third and finally, God gives us grace to reach out through us to refresh and restore others. That's what I'm trying to do here today. I'm trying to ask God to use me to to reach out to you so that you might be restored, so that you in turn might be reaching out to others, sharing the grace and comforting those with the comfort that you've received. David says in verse 13, Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, open my lips, take away the stain and the shame, and open my mouth so that I may declare your praise. Now remember, sin deserves death. David is a guilty man here. So David confesses he's not just an unwitting sinner, No, he's a willful sinner. He's plotted death for Uriah, and in turn, he deserves death. He's an adulterer, a conspirator, and a murderer. He admits his sin, requires his own life, but he trusts in God's mercy. He vows to turn from sin to righteousness, to live a publicly righteous life as a testimony to God's mercy and forgiveness. He implores God to open his lips. Now, one sinner's repentance 
can cause a lot of good for the kingdom of God. If you've ever heard somebody tell their story of how God has cleansed them and restored them, it can benefit many. I don't know what your sphere of influence is. I don't know if, you, if you're a parent in a home, you have children, or, or maybe you're a captain on a sports team, or you're running a business. As you experience God's incredible grace, let it liberate you with joy to share that grace with others. Now that restoration of soul always leads to right worship. And the psalm ends with David returning to delight in sacrifice. He says, if for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it to you. In other words, I'd slaughter a thousand bulls if it would make a difference. But, but what you're pleased with more is this in verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a, are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God does not despise those things. A broken spirit, a contrite heart. It's the haughty, proud man that is broken before God. But if you come before God with a broken spirit already, in a position of humility, then God will restore you. This becomes a prayer, not just for David, but it becomes a pledge for him to proclaim to the nation. It becomes a plea for wide-scale renewal among the people of God. That's my plea this morning to Christ's church that God in His holy word would remind us of our utter and total need to rely and depend upon Christ and His sacrificial cleansing offered to us through His broken body and shed blood on the cross. And that with that knowledge, that might empower us for change from the inside out. David concludes the psalm knowing that restoration, when it happens to a human heart, always leads to blessing, both in the, in the human heart as an individual in his family and percolating out even to the nation. He says, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Build up the walls of your church, O God. And then you will delight in the right sacrifice of your son. As we finish today, I just want to ask, a very simple question. Where's God at work in you? He's at work in me, in my household. Where is He at work in you? What is He wanting to cleanse you of? When I, when I spoke these words to you this morning, did you instantly feel condemned by guilt? Or are you trusting in the character of God who is a loving and kind and merciful God. He's a holy God of holy love, and His holy love will lead you to repentance. So where's God at work in you? Is He leading you to change your mind about something? Is He leading you to return to Him in some area? Is there some secret area of your life that you've been hiding from God, as David did, thinking nobody really knew? See, God can see everything that we are and everything that we do. He knows that we come up short. He knows that there's only one who has faithfully and fully fulfilled all of the law. Not just the outwardness of it, but the intent of it as well. Jesus Christ was fully and completely obedient to the Father and honored Him with every thought and every motive of His heart was pure at all times. And it's His sacrifice on the cross for us that liberates us then to follow after Him. In order to do that, we as a church 
must live a life of ongoing repentance, always turning again and again to God. Is He leading you to change some area of your life today? If so, do what David did. Quickly cop to it. Admit it. Run to God. Seek out His his pardon and His forgiveness. And, listen, and plead the very character of God. His steadfast loving kindness and mercy. Because it is His mercy that leads us to change and growth from the inside out. Now, we're going to sing a a very joyful song. Why? Why would we end such an intense sermon and and such an intense uh, series, really? This is one of the seven penitential psalms in, in the Psalter. Why would we end this series on such an intense note and then finish with a joyful song as we're about to do? The reason is, is that our God is such a gracious and kind God that as we humble ourselves before Him, His mercy and His kindness is manifested in our lives. In a moment, I'll I'll be over here to uh, pray with some folks on one side or the other. looks like over here they have it set up. And if you would like to receive communion today, we can't have everyone, just, you know, a few people come up to receive communion or prayer. I I can't imagine what issue it might be, but some area of change that you know God is, is speaking into your life I want to encourage you, after this joyful song concludes, to come on up and and seal that with prayer this morning and receive communion. I'll be there, and and the prayer team will be there, and, and Jared will be there as well. We'd be more than happy to pray with you. But as the worship team comes to to lead us in a joyful song, let me pray. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful that salvation is is ours and is free, and is good. And I'm so thankful, Father, that it's not just a a legal transaction, but a cleansing. This aspect of your salvation, Lord, is so glorious. It's so good. Thank you, Father, that it's not just a legal transaction, but there there is a cleansing of our lives that you give us through the sacrifice of your Son the expiation of our sin, as the theologians say. We're so thankful and grateful. We want to honor you here this morning as we turn our hearts afresh to you and and thank you for this great and glorious salvation that you've given to us. And so will your spirit come now and restore to your people the joy of their salvation. And God's people said, Amen. Will you stand and sing?